kind of unfortunate that it, it happened in the aftermath of George Floyd. But I will say that that change was necessary and should have happened prior, but at least it's happening now. They now recognize like I can go into other spaces and my voice does matter and people do need to listen to me because I matter. Hello, everyone. This is Jolene May, your host for the Diversity Podcast, where we talk with real people doing real work in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. If you want to explore what people are doing right, what positive impacts are happening, or even how positive changes can be done, you're in the right place. We welcome you to join us. Today, we have a unique guest with us. I'm happy to welcome Priscilla Smith to our podcast. She is an AP language and composition teacher and a DEI facilitator at KIPP NYC. Priscilla is an innovative change agent in her classroom and community. She has created DEI presentations and discussions implemented with 150 plus staff. She's a leader of solution-based discussions and is passionate about applying DEI not just to the workplace, but also to interpersonal relationships as they challenge us to learn more about the human experience. Priscilla considers herself to have an eclectic personality, and she appreciates when she finds others surprised that she might not fit what they were expecting. So welcome, Priscilla. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, just a name. I go by Gracie. My professional name is Priscilla, but you can feel free to call me Gracie. Thank you. Okay, I will. Gracie, tell me a little bit about you and how did you become involved as the DEI facilitator at KIPP NYC? So I've been teaching for 10 years, which sounds crazy to me because I still feel like I just graduated and I'm like somehow 18. But I moved to New York City for my master's program. And I had been teaching in Florida for six years prior. And I've always been really interested in talking about kind of what I think has been labeled, unfortunately, taboo in the classroom. I know that where I was, it was like, don't talk about politics, don't talk about sexism and racism and homophobia. And I was like, all right, we're going to talk about all of those things. <laughs> when I got to New York City and KIPP, they actually had already started and had been doing DEI work within the network and specifically within my high school. And one of the onboarding things that we did was actually DEI meetings. And so that's when I first got introduced to the fact that there are actually schools out there who are really trying to implement this work, challenge curriculum, and really talk about these things in a macro and micro level. And so I was really inspired by that. And I really fell in love with like our facilitators at the time. Um, it was run by a man named Anthony Bush, who's doing amazing things. He just moved to San Francisco and does this work now for the San Francisco like government. I mean, I've really had great uh, leadership. And so that kind of got me involved in being a facilitator. And so now four years later, I'm still facilitating and still working with the network on that. I love that. That's pretty cool. And it's nice to hear that surprise as well. Like, oh, cool. I love that this educational system like prioritizes that. And I thought it was really interesting researching about you and knowing a little bit more about what you're passionate about and what you value in the DEI sector. And in preparation for this podcast, you said you were really motivated about the intersections of identity and how they impact both ourselves and those around us. And you mentioned like humanity. So I thought that was really powerful. And I would like if you could tell me more in detail about what you mean by those statements and what does humanity maybe mean to you? I think there's, we get so caught in like all the ways in which we're different and we don't always focus on the ways in which we have a lot of similar experiences because again, we're all human beings and we all want to be respected and, and seen as such. And so I think a lot of what DEI does is kind of challenge us to look at Again, like the interpersonal relationships we have, 
as well as systemic issues and how we play a role in all of those things. And they all, like when we talk about intersectionality, obviously giving credit to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who even coined the term, um, is really looking at like the intersections of identity markers and how systems of oppression can stack on top of each other. But I think as we continue to do this work, like we start to realize intersectionality can mean a lot of different ways in which we cross paths and experiences. So for example, there's plenty of people on, on my campus that like as women, we can relate, but as a woman who's white passing, I cannot to women of color. And so having that conversation and recognizing like, okay, we have these shared experiences, but then there's another layer that you experience and I might have blind spots because of it. I think really rooting ourselves empathy. I think that's a term that I use with my students a lot. And we talk through what is the difference between sympathy and empathy? What does it mean to be compassionate and empathetic? Getting away from words like being tolerant, because to me, that technically actually is not really a positive term. And we talk about connotative meaning. So when we move from being tolerant to being empathetic and understanding, I think we are rooting ourselves in looking at someone else's humanity, even if we don't share the same exact experiences as them. I really love that tolerance and empathy. I love that because I also look at empathy as well. And I think it's important to try to understand the experiences other people have because we're all different, but we, you're right. We all have some layer of similarity. And I think that differences between us is an opportunity for us to grow on that and to be empathic and to understand, like you said, the human experience. This leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is solution based and or solution oriented discussions. As someone who values growth and has facilitated some solution-based discussions, what tips do you have on how others might approach those types of discussions? Because I can see how that might feel maybe daunting to some people where there's maybe a lot of differences or maybe they don't know the people in that group to feel that level of trust. So maybe what are some initial tips for someone starting that out? Or what are some tips to keep that going and rolling in positive and in a growth mindset? I think you definitely have to, it has to come top down. Like leadership has to really value that wherever you are, whether you're in the education sector or some other sector, leadership and management is huge and making sure that people feel comfortable coming to them because the first thing is naming, hey, we have this issue or we have this thing that I really want to talk about or that's really impacting my work here. And whether that is something that is on an interpersonal, like a staff to staff or a policy that exists within network or whatever it happens to be. First, it starts with leadership and making sure that your employees feel comfortable. And then you actually have that dialogue, I would say, that needs to happen one-on-one. And then another thing is just like reaching out to others who you feel comfortable with who might relate or also get on board. Um, Because sometimes we do feel more supportive. It's just not us. And that's just, I think, a part of the human experience too. It feels very daunting to be like, am I the only one who is seeing this or feeling this? So that's the first thing is see like, you know, who you can reach out to and who can become kind of what we call like a co-conspirator in this work. And that is not a term that I came up with at all. That's from um, Dr. Patina Love. If anyone wants to read her work, she's amazing. (laughs) I'll probably drop a whole bunch of names of people that we study and, and look at. But I think to answer your question in a more like macro level of like, this is a a direct thing you can do is kind of like actually having to take that first step in naming. This is the issue. And I do want to address it and like kind of calling someone in to be like, I want to talk through this versus I have this idea. It's kind of like, let's come up with the idea together of how to best resolve this or at least approach it. So that way I think people are more open to it because they feel like they're a part of the solution-based thinking and brainstorm. I like that. So I'm hearing finding other people, sharing that experience, what you're thinking about it, if it's, you know, just you or if it's not just you, what that experience is, and then collaborating. It sounds like just leading that into a collaborative space. And you're right, you know, having that priority from leadership. And I feel like that opens doors for those kinds of discussions to fuel growth and collaboration as well. Was there a time that maybe you had a solution-oriented discussion that ended really well 
I would love to hear about maybe a specific situation like that. I can't say ended well at first. So I think oftentimes the thing we need to normalize is people aren't always going to be super open to maybe that discussion because they're going to have those visceral responses that I think are very normal of like maybe getting defensive or maybe just not really hearing it because, you know, it just it's hard. So I think the first thing would be there was a curriculum. I don't want to call it an issue, but something that I did not feel right within the curriculum. And when I approached my team at the time, it was only one person. It was we were a two person team and he's not agree with me. That was definitely difficult, I think, for my manager because she wanted us both to be heard. And at the end of the day, it was kind of like, okay, well, what's best for students? And it was kind of mitigated in a way of like, okay, Grace is going to do this with her kids because she feels that that's what's right. And you're going to do what's best for your kids or what you feel is right. And then we engaged in more DEI work and it became where he was able to admit like, you were you were right in calling this out. I'm going to change the curriculum and we're going to revamp what we did. And so sometimes it is not hey, I named this thing. Oh, yes, you're right. And then I'm changing it. It's I need to sit with it. I need to reflect. I need to really have my own time to process. And that's really, I think, what happened and normalizing that. So it is a positive thing because even though it took time, our curriculum has changed. And now it is a conversation we have every year at the beginning of the year, making sure everyone on the team is comfortable with what is being taught, how it's being taught. If anyone calls something out for saying like, I think there's a blind spot here and this isn't going to land well, like we're far more now open to hearing that. And if anyone has an issue, it's like, let's not, there's plenty of other resources. Let's not even have a debate then. If you don't feel comfortable, none of us are comfortable. Let's keep moving. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. No, it did. And you hit a lot of points as well. I mean, it sounds like there was discomfort. And what I liked, though, was there was a disagreement and it wasn't a stopping point. That's what I really appreciated about your story is it was like, hey, let me stop and think about this. And you're like, all right, we're going to. But, you know, life goes on and you have to keep going, you know, in the school year. Through that process, though, you were able to come back together. And I thought that was really cool. And not only that, but put a process together so that those kinds of discussions can happen openly and kind of just be part of the process, which I think is really key to DEI work is not reinventing the wheel, but just what are you already doing and how can we continue to streamline that with DEI in mind? So that was, you hit a lot of really good points with that. (laughs) So actually that ties in greatly to what I wanted to talk about next, which is comfort with discomfort. So this is like a two-part question for students and coworkers or staff, because I think how you approach students might be maybe different of how you approach it with staff. So how do you approach a coworker or how do you maybe instill that in the culture where people feel more comfortable being uncomfortable? Because sometimes you do need to open up and learning about the DEI space, there's going to be times that people face some heavy realities or they have some discomfort. So what's your approach with that? I think the biggest approach that's been beneficial is naming all of the ways in which I fail on a regular basis. Because I think there's this misconception of like, oh, you're a facilitator, you do this work. So somehow you are just like never going to be someone who perpetuates racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, etc. All of the things, right? And it's like, no, that's unrealistic. And that's not true. And I have failed and I will fail again. And I've noticed the more I name it, the more comfortable people that I'm facilitating with are comfortable naming theirs. So I think that's the big part of discomfort is like, if we all act like, oh, I can't talk about this thing, including those of us who are supposed to be facilitating the work, that's actually doing a disservice to everyone who we're actually pushing and asking to like do work, right? (laughs) So I think the biggest thing is just really being very cognizant of our own roles in all of these things and like the ways in which, hey, I, I had this failure, but this is how I've reflected and this is how I'm actively working to change. And also I think naming that this is never gonna be like, I've met an endpoint. I 
I'm done. I am, I'm woke, <laughs> whatever the word is. Like one of my coworkers, I love her because she's like, I hate that word because at the end of the day, like none of us are at any given point. You know, you can't say like, I'm done learning. That's just, it goes against everything I am as a teacher, right? You should always be learning and always be a student. And so that applies to DEI work as well. And so I think when you start normalizing that, you can have these conversations a lot easier. I think being vulnerable is the first step. What about with students? So how would you approach students with, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable? I mean, that's also, I think, where vulnerability comes in. I'm a very different person with my students than I am with probably, like, some coworkers I don't really, like, know that well. Like, I'm just so comfortable with them that I'm just like, yo, I'm having anxiety today. Like, I have diagnosed anxiety. And so I teach an AP class, and it is just a room full of anxious children all the time because they, they put a lot of pressure on themselves. And so I normalize, like, hey, like, this is what I'm feeling when I'm anxious. This is how I handle those feelings. And I think when I normalize that from the beginning, I mean, I've had panic attacks in front of them and had to like step out and I'm never ashamed of it. And like, I normalize it for them. Same thing with normalizing conversations. I talk about my own family history. We do a lot of talk about a lot of what is, I guess, technically considered DEI, right? Like, for example, one of the texts we're reading right now is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. It gets into apartheid and like systemic racism, as well as interpersonal racism and colorism. And so I share with them my own experiences with colorism and things of that nature within my own family. Oftentimes by looking at me, you I mean, again, I'm white passing, but I am Japanese, Mexican and Polish. Me and my sister have two very different racial experiences because we just came out looking so different. And so I name that and I talk about how I can relate on feeling othered or like people say things to me because they think they're in good white company. And then I have to be like, no, actually, you just really said something problematic. And so like me and my kids have a lot of real conversations. And so I think that comes from me being like, this is what my experience was. And then they feel way more comfortable telling me about theirs, analyzing someone else's. And so I think that's also how we get back to kind of to bring it full circle, the humanity part, like people can't see us as fully human if we are not presenting ourselves as who we really are. Right. And that's something, like I said, I do need to work on. I do it with my kids and I need to do it more with coworkers and people that maybe I don't know. Cause I think that automatic response is, is like, protect myself. You can't know me. <laughs> and so kind of trying to unveil ourselves a little bit more because we can realize that in sharing our stories and our experiences, people can actually start challenging their own beliefs. Which is why in my bio even said, like, I love kind of surprising people and being like, actually, this is what I am. And actually, this is what I like. And actually, this is what I do. I like that. I hear that you're using that humanity or human experience as a starting point, you know, the foundation to build up from. So I like that you like surprising people. Okay, let's move on to inclusivity in the classroom. So there's many ways people can approach inclusivity in the classroom, content, culture, all that jazz. Maybe there's a teacher out there that doesn't know how to start. You know, I think starting in DEI may be a hard part for a lot of people. What are some places you would suggest is a good place to start on that? Number one, students, which you would think would be like the most obvious answer. But I think a lot of times we feel as educators or maybe as bosses or whatever, we got to know everything. We have to provide all the resources and all of the support. And we're one person. And if you have a class of 28 kids, that's 28 minds and 28, you know, people who enjoy various different things. And so there'll be times where I'm like, send me songs, send me poems, send me videos, send me TikToks. I don't care. And then I incorporate them into the curriculum if they're on the topic that we're discussing. And my kids send me some really amazing stuff. I've had them send me, I mean, like, I'll just like wake up and there'll be text messages of tweets and they'll be like, I saw this on Twitter. This is what we were talking about. And then I'll put it in our do now and we'll analyze the language or we'll analyze what is this person really actually saying? So we have a gender unit. They go crazy on the social media comments because there's so much out there that's just really problematic, let's be honest. 
And we get to analyze people's language and talk about, okay, what do they really mean when they use this word? So not only am I reinforcing the skills that they need to know, they're starting to recognize how to see implicit bias versus just the explicit stuff. And they have way more resources than I do because I don't spend my time on TikTok. I spend my time at the gym. (laughs) So I have you know, very little time to like do as much research. And so I kind of also get them to do a little bit of my job. So it's great. It works out really well. And they'll even send me like books that they want to read. Again, I teach English. So it does lend itself a little bit to a more, I would say, diverse medium. I can teach like videos, I can teach books, I can teach songs. So I've even shown like, I love Eddie Wong and Fresh Off the Boat. And so we've used Uh, So episodes there to talk about juxtaposition and talking about like assimilation. And so like using them, but also getting creative. What do they enjoy? What do they do on their free time? And then how can I incorporate that into the classroom? I love that your involvement and research. And I, I love that you're encouraging them to do their own research, to go out there already on the platforms that they're using, but you're kind of just directing it in a space that would connect to the classroom and and probably is a really good use of time to look at what they see on social media with a different lens. So that's very modern. I really like that approach in that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly what needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah. And then you mentioned Fresh Off the Boat, man. That is such a funny like series. I I really like Shang-Chi too. I don't know if you watched that, but uh, I was like, oh my gosh, this applies. I feel connected. Yeah, I wish I had a way to incorporate that, but we'll see. One day I'll get that in there. Yeah, it's huge. There's a lot of interesting movies out there. Okay, really cool. Great to hear about that as a good starting point, because that probably could also funnel into, like you said, curriculum, which I think will just pan out nicely for teachers. The next question I have is specific to the educational system. You know, people look at DEI and usually think about the business sector a lot, but let's talk about the educational system. Was there anything, now we're looking not at the student side, but at the faculty side, because it does start with faculty. So was there maybe a time that you saw a change or a DEI strategy work or not work? And why do you think that was? I think One of the strategies that we've also like incorporated with DEI is SEL, which is social emotional learning and talking about how that also applies to adults. So I think common human experience is like worst case scenario plays out in our head or when someone maybe like pops off at us, we think it's us or we take it personal. And so what has really worked in our school is kind of naming emotions and like doing SEL work for ourselves. Also, obviously it works with kids and interactions with them. But you know, when someone's not in the right headspace, it's okay to like recognize that in yourself or in someone else, but also not let them opt out of the conversation and be like, I understand that it seems like you're you having a visceral response. I do want to check back. I'm free within these times. Let me know what works for you. And then step away from the situation. And that's actually worked really well, I think, because it allows people time to reflect. I think we want these instant gratification, this instant like change or response. And people are not always there. And we don't also we're living in a pandemic. Let's just name that. It's been wild. Like we're in New York City. Like there's people with kids who aren't vaccinated. Like there's just so much going on. Um, And so people are coming into the building with so much other stuff that's happening in their lives. And so recognizing that I think has been a huge change for the way we interact with one another, the way we're speaking to students, even when they come in and they have their AirPods in and we're like, oh, this is the 80th time I've told you about your AirPods. Like it gets frustrating, but you're also just like, okay, let me check my tone. Let me make sure I'm like, good morning. How are you? I wish you could hear me right now. If you took those off, that would be great. 
So recognizing that they might have them in because they are trying to avoid certain things, or maybe it is just they want to listen to their favorite song, but we don't know. And so making sure that we are cognizant that everyone, again, social, emotionally is in a different place. And so that has definitely changed, I think, our DEI work in general, because we are not like, we're having this conversation, this change needs to happen tomorrow. We're giving people time and space. And so again, I think those two things need to be talked about. If you're someone who is not in the educational sector, and you are in the business sector, and you are trying to do DEI work, like you cannot omit the SEL side of your employees, because people have emotions and people go through things. And that is going to impact how they actually interact and how they work, really, and come into the workspace. Yeah, you're very right on that. Um, There is a lot going on. And it's so easy for us to jump to conclusions. I think that giving people time and say, hey, I want to talk to you about this, but later kind of thing and postpone that is a really good way to approach that. So that's awesome. You know, people who want to collaborate with educational leadership, because sometimes, you know, seeing a problem, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but maybe seeing a problem, maybe there's someone who's seeing an issue and they want to know how to approach that and find some procedures or processes or solutions to an issue they see to educational leadership. What's something that you would suggest, or maybe there's something that you've done that has been beneficial or successful? Emails. <laughs> Send many an email. I mean, honestly, I think that's the best way to, to do it if you're not comfortable like going face-to-face or you don't have access. So for example, you know, I'm in a network that's huge. We have 13,000 students. We have 150 staff. And that's just like really teachers and faculty. That's not including other people who work within the building. Then when you add on the layer of like the superintendent and the 11 other schools we have. And so if I need to talk to, let's say the superintendent, like I can't go find him down the hall, you know? So I think sending an email that is thought out also recognize like someone's time is valuable. And so trying to not be too wordy, but really getting to your point, listing out solutions. So it's not just like, I see this issue. I think people in leadership appreciate, I see this issue. I've thought through some potential solutions. I would love to connect and have conversations if you have other suggestions or, or thoughts on these things that I have to offer. I know that sounds like the most basic answer ever, but at the end of the day, don't sleep on a good email, you know? So, and sometimes it does make it feel more comfortable because you're able to go in and edit and you're not having to do the face-to-face thing where you're like, oh no, what if I say the wrong thing? It's like, well, you you have time to like revise if you write an email. So that's kind of, I guess, my suggestion. Sorry that it's super basic. No, I like that it's simple because it's really easy to complicate things when we're nervous or when we're afraid, right, to approach something. So I like that that's a very tangible first step to get started. And earlier you mentioned, you know, talking to somebody about it too. And I'm sure that that would happen in this situation and being able to sit on it, like you said, I think just taking the time to think about it and also the nuance. There's so many nuances with bringing up issues too of like, hey, this is an issue, not just this is an issue, but this is an issue. This is what I think my door is open. How can we collaborate about it? So that's really good. I like that. All right. Last question I have for you. Tell us about an experience you had when you witnessed maybe a small change enable a positive outcome at work. To me, this is a small change, but also a big change. Never had SGA, which is student government or like student leadership, I guess. I would say that we recognize in the DEI work that we were doing all this work with ourselves and making all these decisions for kids and they had no voice in it. You know, and so sometimes this is really big to me in like corporate companies. Like I hear friends say this and no matter what realm they're working in, like I'm the one on the ground and they're making all these decisions and they are not talking to me. They're not talking to us. They're not taking our expertise. It makes us feel like they don't trust us. It makes us feel like they don't value us. And so recognizing that we felt that way about our leadership and then we were making kids feel that way. 
So the small thing that happened is that we created a thing called Student Voice. A lot of faculty members had been advocating for this for such a long time. Students have been advocating for this for such a long time. I'm not going to lie. It took a lot for it to actually happen. And it was kind of unfortunate that it, it happened in the aftermath of George Floyd. But I will say that that change was necessary and should have happened prior, but at least it's happening now. That would be my suggestion to like anyone in a leadership role. Like you should always consult the people whose lives you're impacting based on the policies that you're making or the changes that you're making. Um, If they're not there and their voice is not heard, then it's just like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know? And so seeing students really take ownership of their actual schooling outside of not just the classroom, because we actually ask them about curriculum and they're actually a part of those conversations, but also like dress code. What what do you want your dress code to be? What seems like a valid thing to have as a boundary and what isn't, you know, and we changed our dress code completely based on what students wanted and students needed. And I mean, it's those little micro things that have a really macro impact. They now recognize like I can go into other spaces and my voice does matter and people do need to listen to me because I matter. That's been, to me, a beautiful thing to see because so many of my kids have become some of those leaders. And I call them my kids because they were my students. But <laughs> yeah, just making sure voice is heard. And so that is something that I've been really happy to see implemented and I think has made a huge change. That sounds really fulfilling, you know, having that platform for people on the ground to really be heard. And also that sounds like a really good information gathering space too for people making those decisions. Thank you for such a fulfilling and awesome conversation, especially in the educational sector. You brought a lot of really awesome points to this discussion. So I thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to explore how we can enable diversity at work. Please do follow us on your podcast app so that you can always have the latest episodes downloaded. If you want to contact us, please visit diverseek.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-E-K.com. This episode was produced by Madhu Nair, edited by Johnson Dalek, researched by Jolene May, music composed by Nicholas Lang, and our production team includes Keisha Williams, Prashant Balbar, and Maria Quirina. I am your host, Jolene May, and you have been listening to Diverseek.